Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Bowman, the host of Side Door, a podcast with candid conversations with world-class entrepreneurs. There's not one passion, one path, one purpose for everyone. That's insane. Like your life is both long and short. Anything can happen. So the only thing you can do is just go for the ride. That voice you hear is today's guest, Gita Sharir. She's the CEO of Our Fitness, a growing health and wellness startup focused on helping improve the lives of all Indonesians. While we definitely discuss her journey and her business, today's conversation transcends the Our Fitness story. Gita is a polymath. I don't know if there are official parameters that dictate who a polymath is, but that's the word that kept popping into my head as I reflected on our conversation. You can tell that Gita is a deep thinker in connecting many different dots. While building our fitness is at the core of our discussion, we touch on the philosophy of life, unconscious biases and their role in business, and why mental health is such an important issue to tackle. I saved this episode to close season one because it's such a fantastic web of knowledge. We start by getting to know Gita, her background, and where the idea for our fitness came from. Hi, Gita. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, so Great. You are the CEO of Our Fitness. Uh, yeah. and I want to get into what Art Fitness uh, is all about, uh, but can you first start by giving the listeners a background on uh, who you are, where you grew up, and, and kind of your professional history before? Ooh, okay, sure. I will attempt to remember as much of my uh, professional history as I could because I realized I've been working now for almost 18 years. Um, so I might forget some stuff along the way. Um, okay, so uh, professionally speaking, I've actually been an entrepreneur now for 10 years. I've built, um, helped build three companies and one of them failed because it was my first time being CEO. So I think I was just a shitty CEO. Oh, well, lesson learned. Um, and then before that, I was in business development and also interned uh, at a hedge fund during the global financial crisis, which meant that it was a really good lesson that nothing in life is safe. A lot of my friends lost their jobs and all of my friends at Lehman definitely lost their jobs. So that was a big wake up call for me that I'm better off just doing something I enjoy and attempt to make a living out of it. That's as sustainable as I could make it. And, uh, you know, very quickly, what was, what was that first startup that you, you created that failed? Okay. It was an e-commerce startup for plus size women. Uh, it's a very untapped industry, I think even until now. And I liked it because in general, I just like retail. I like consumer goods. And it's just one of those industries that I've been going in and out doing for a while. So for example, I even worked at MEP, which is this country's largest retail company for a year when I first moved to Jakarta, basically when I didn't know what I wanted to do and what I was doing. So I joined a retail company because before then, even when I was doing my internship at the hedge fund, I was in the retail desk. It's just, something I find fascinating. It's a lot of data. It's a lot of um, trying to understand what will happen next. And there are so many things that can affect um, how consumers will behave. And I really like seeing that part. Uh, and also just seeing how, you know, each part 
can affect one or the other and that you see the results pretty much right away. If you do a pricing tactic uh, in a retail store, you can pretty much see what will happen right then and there. So it was a very dynamic and I think it still is a dynamic industry. Yeah, we've had a couple ex Lazada guests uh, on this podcast. So there's a lot of yeah. a lot of lessons that people can learn from working in e-commerce early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had said you before, you know, you had just moved to or you had moved to Indonesia and Jakarta. So can you just briefly tell us where uh, where you were before moving? Mm-hmm. So I've lived all over the place. I grew up in Boston. Uh, so I was raised there. My parents were both uh, doing their PhDs. My dad was at Harvard. My mom was in BU. And they had a really interesting history. My dad was a political prisoner during the Suharto era, which explains why he probably didn't want to live in Indonesia after he left prison. So he ended up getting a scholarship, my mom did too, in the US, and that's where they studied, and basically that's where I was raised. What made you come back to uh, Jakarta then? Right, that's that's the million dollar question, and I will say that I have no idea. I think when I was living in New York, life felt a little comfortable, as in, it seems predictable. Like, the worst thing um, that, you know, that plagued my mind was really stupid shit. Like, oh my gosh, the train is late by eight minutes or where should we go for brunch this weekend? It was nothing, you know, it was really nothing super challenging. And I went to Indonesia several times because my brother uh, was already living here. He moved from New York because he saw the potential in the country. And it wasn't until I saw how people were living their lives, um, you know, seeing the demographic. I am a big fan of um, information. So I was looking into all the data and all the market um, behavior, the trends, the pattern, and it just seemed like a very vibrant place to start something. What that something was, I actually wasn't very sure at the time. I knew it had to be something in the B2C space, preferably in lifestyle. But at the time I was like, do I do e-commerce again? Do I do uh, something else? Um, And that was why I came to Jakarta. Um, So it wasn't, it wasn't really necessarily a decision because I wanted to be with family, especially because my mom was a diplomat in a different country. It was more that um, I wanted to try something new in life and I wanted to challenge myself uh, professionally and just thought-wise as much as I can. Besides the way I see it, you know, I'm privileged enough to have the education and the background that I have that if things don't go well, um, I have the flexibility to find another job. That that story, you know, sounds very familiar to me. I think oh. my path here might be a little bit different, but I think, you know, the same thing where uh, adventure and when I got here, there's, I just recognize that there's a lot of opportunity uh, to be had. And that's kind of why I'm still here after almost five years. Whoa. So, yeah. And uh, so you, you know, you came here, you, you you started working at MAP, you, you knew you Mm -hmm. wanted a company, but you didn't know exactly what. Uh, but then you started a company called um, Ride, which is now Our Fitness. Mm-hmm. So can you mm-hmm. let, kind of like 
what, uh, you know, where did the idea for Ride come from? And then how did it kind of evolve into uh, our fitness? Sure. A lot of people think that I started a company in the fitness space because I'm so obsessed with working out, but actually it's the exact opposite. So I started going to a gym simply because I wanted to find a way to relieve stress. And also I have an autoimmune disease, which gives me rheumatoid arthritis. So people like me are supposed to do lower impact exercises so that our, um, our inflammation in our joints are controlled. That's the, first, that's the big reason why I started uh, doing some form of exercise. And it wasn't until I started going to gyms or, you know, joining like fitness communities where I saw this uh, white space for fitness that is inclusive, affordable, and non-judgmental. One of the things that I felt when I joined a lot of gyms was this feeling that I'm not good enough or, you know, I'm not hardcore enough. And uh, being someone with um, rheumatoid arthritis, it really did feel I was, quote unquote, not as good, you know, because there are many things that people do that for them is fine. But for me, it's actually painful. Like, for example, a box jump for a typical person might be okay, but I used to force myself to do them so I can be quote unquote normal, but it's certifiably painful. And so I wanted to make a fitness community that accepts people no matter what goals they have. And it started with Ride because at the time there was no real, um, boutique indoor cycling studio format. So a studio that focuses purely on um, indoor cycling, but done in a way that looks like it's a club and has that kind of premium experience and also very friendly type of community. So um, the 180 of a big box uh, gym type of model. And then as that grew, that was more like a proof of concept for us. We wanted to actually have a much more diverse uh, brand that also encompasses mental health because I'm a massive fan of, um, you know, just maintaining your mental health. I think like it starts with your mind first and then it, you know, bleeds over to the rest of your life, like including your physical health. So we diversified starting from last year, which is by making our fitness in which we have not just cycling, but also yoga, meditation, and HIIT classes because we wanted to offer people different ways of enjoying movement. So basically celebrating what your body can do rather than exercising because you hate your body and you want to be thin or whatnot. And that is how we ended up here over the last five years. Okay, so we're going to get into more of the nitty gritty of that, right? But what you're saying, uh, how fitness can can feel exclusionary, you know, yeah. something that, you know, curved in the U.S., uh, built built a brand because it helped women feel safe to work out. So that, yeah. that definitely makes sense. Uh, and so when you're talking about boutique uh, indoor riding, you're <clears throat> it's very, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you're talking like a soul cycle type class. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's more of an experience rather than straight up utilitarian exercise. Okay. And so 
this became your, like you said, your proof of concept. People, people are joining. They're they're excited about this, and you know, any anybody of any fitness level is is welcome into this community. Uh, and it's you know because it's low impact, uh, it is it attracts uh, all sorts of people. Right. Correct. And then, um, so you said that you've kind of like branched out when you turned it into our fitness, right? And so, uh, I'm, I'm familiar with, there's ride, rave, reflect, mm -hmm. pod, mm -hmm. right? So can you kind of give us an understanding of what are those, uh, different aspects and like, are they all live right now? Or are you kind of like launching them through like a, you know, a product roadmap? Uh, and we're going to see some more of these go live in the next few months. Yeah, so all of them are live. Uh, we have, you know, around 10-ish classes online daily. And you can find that on the Our Fitness app, which is available on Google and uh, Apple Store. And basically what they are, they're just sub-brands of our uh, holding company, which is Our Fitness. It started out with Ride, which is an indoor cycling uh, studio. And then we came up with some other random brands because we're like, if we call them Ride, wouldn't it be confusing? So our other offering is Rave. Rave has a bunch of stuff. That's like Zumba, PoundFit, HIT classes, and you know even uh, airboxing, things like that. And then Reflect is more our meditation and yoga. Where it's gonna all be in the future, I'm not quite sure because the market keeps moving. But right now, all I know is that we're going to keep everything online. And if anything, we've been wanting to be online since four years ago because we saw that it really is probably the best way to scale our offering because you're not anymore relegated to four walls of the brick and mortar. Um, so moving forward, we're going to continue to grow our online business and then any offline that we make will just to help that um, offline to online type of ecosystem. Yeah, I think Peloton is a great example that <clears throat> fitness online app is definitely where the growth is. So you, you said you have this app, right? iOS, Android. Uh, I I download it right. How, oh wow! Well, I'm I watch it on my on my laptop, and that's where I'm doing the classes. Then in my my living room, like that's how it. Yeah. Comes. yeah, and we also rent and sell equipments too. So let's say you want to take a ride class, and you're like, "How do I do that? I don't have a bike." We're like, "No worries. We also sell and rent those." And that one people really like. So even if you want to take a pound class or any other class and you don't have the equipment, heck, we even sell yoga mats. So you're all covered. And did you launch all of this and have this vision before COVID or uh, totally. result because of COVID? No, uh, we've had it since 2016, which is why we raised venture capital funding. We knew that we didn't want to be uh, an offline play purely because we know the limitations of the brick and mortar, but we just didn't know if the market was ready in 2016. And it's something that we've just been having in the back of our 
um, I wouldn't even say minds because we started working on the infrastructure several years ago. It was more when would be a good time to launch it because our vision is not just to be in the Jakarta market, but also in the secondary tertiary cities because Jakarta, no matter what, is just a small percentage of where Indonesians live. And we saw like this white space for the rest of um, Indonesia because the fact is if you even have a small percentage of Indonesians um, consuming your product, that's still millions and millions of people. So we were always bullish on that. Um, like I said, we just weren't sure when would be a good timing. So when the pandemic happened, uh, the first thing we did was making sure that everyone is safe and okay. But then we also saw this opportunity to finally experiment and see if the market is ready and willing to purchase and consume wellness products online, which it turns out they do. Uh, so we have a following in 40 cities outside of Jakarta, which is really cool. Like places like West Sumatra, Kalimantan, all of those um, uh, cities. And it's just been really fun localizing our content and our trainers, uh, for example, we, higher from outside of Jakarta now um, quite extensively and to see you know to see how the market uh, reacts and consumes and they give us a lot of great feedback too. Uh, so I, I'm really interested in getting more into uh, mm -hmm. the growth process right because from, from my perspective right a lot of these U.S. Um, fitness startups are very uh, like middle to upper middle class uh, focus right. uh, you know peloton yeah. $2,500 plus dollar right. uh, subscription right and I think if uh, you were only familiar with ride and ride was like in I think you were you had a place in Pacific place which is like a you know an upper end mall uh, and some other location right like it it would feel like it, it is following that um, that same model of only attracting you know the the wealthier but you know you are talking to me about being in 40 cities and these like secondary that have <clears throat> probably uh you know lower socioeconomic status um, citizens right so how and you, you're talking about localizing content too right which so that's a very mm -hmm. concept to me as well how are yeah. you uh approaching this right because 40 cities is is a lot Right, and it's, it's a lot, yeah. and, it, and if you're talking about localizing content, uh, that's also a lot of work, right? Typically, if you just do one piece of, you know, one video, and then shoot it out for everyone, uh, it's a lot easier. But it sounds like you are um, taking a much more concerted effort to make sure that whatever content that you are creating resonates with these cities, so it is more inclusive, right? So. I guess I'm, I've asked like five questions in like, in this, yeah. like, okay. how, how have you approached that? Right. Because that's, that's not easy. So what, what was your, your process? And then like, um, what were you thinking about when you were, were setting out this plan? Yeah, 
sure. Um, so one thing that uh, we wanted to tackle starting from two years ago was to actually increase our uh, demographic. We didn't want to fall into just the middle upper class target market. And we basically spent the last five years just building brand awareness in some way, hence the locations where we are uh, and what kind of atmosphere we gave. But along the way, we did a lot of uh, mini, uh, you know, mini strategy shifts that created a unique uh, membership demographic for us. So for example, um, no, it's actually not middle upper class for our fitness. In fact, a month membership at our fitness costs less than a month membership at ClassPass. So we have one of the highest rates of uh, switches from a discounted platform to our fitness itself. And another thing that we do is we change our positioning. So our positioning is less about fitness, exercise, um, health, and more about um, wellness and lifestyle. So we don't try to make anyone take on a diet or anything of the sort because wellness for each person is totally different. Like your version might be you want to be able to keep up your, with your kids. One other person's version might be they want to do a triathlon. Another person's version might be, oh my gosh, I worked out once this month. Uh, cool. You know, so that's why we started working with a lot of different lifestyle brands. So for example, we don't just work with a juice brand, we would work with a donut brand. And by the way, we do that every Friday. Uh, back then when we were open, Fridays were donut days. Um, and we did all of that because, you know, wellness is, is personalized and is different for every people. And I think the reason why a lot of brands tend to zero in on the middle upper market is because they assume that wellness is just one or two ways. And um, those are the market that uh, accept that definition, whatever definition that is, right? Whereas we'd like to think about it as this big market for newbies, for beginners. So 40% of our members have never exercised in their lives until they went to our fitness. That's a really big number of people. That's like thousands of people, right? So we know that at least in that market, we have really good word of mouth. Regarding localizing um, the content, we follow a very um, lean startup type of model, and that's because we've been known to be extremely lean uh, throughout our company's life. Like our CAC is very low. It's less than $2. And what we tend to do is just we create this, um, you know, we create this like testing feedback loop models. So we would test something in a small way, maybe release it to 200 people or 100 people, and then just see what their response to it is, get their feedback. So for example, we try to um, send something out when it's only 80% done rather than 100%, because what seems cool to you in your brain might not be something that the market wants anyway. So you know, rather than waste your time and your money trying to come up with a quote unquote perfect solution, let the market tell you what quote-unquote perfect is. What do they want? What do they like? Uh, what do they appreciate? And that is something we try to do. So we do take a lot of data from our customers, get a lot of feedback, and we're quite active with reaching out to people. And 
in order to do it uh, pretty cheaply until now sometimes some things we do very manually like we would literally just text you <laughs> or you know if you're a beginner we want to have a five minute chatting or conversation with you you want to see how else can we make things better and so when we localize things it's a lot of it honestly is accidental probably like we would test out um a content and then a hundred people in this market hated it, but then a hundred people in this other market oddly liked it for whatever reason. And a lot of the reasons would be, hey, yeah, I really like that a person from Lampung is teaching us in Lampung, <laughs> you know, which makes sense. And you're like, oh, well, maybe I should hire more people in Lampung. And that is a type of, um, and that's a type of strategy that I've seen a lot of great media companies do. So when they go to, let's say, Lampung, they don't assume that Lampung people care about the things Jakarta people care about. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. So it just requires a lot of um, customer feedback and listening to people and realizing that you don't have all the answers. Therefore, you just have to be open uh, to what people are saying. Because like I said, what you think is great, the customer might just think it's okay or not even something they like um, and that is something we are constantly trying to improve on just having our pulse on what people are thinking and getting data for that yeah testing is extremely important and uh, mm -hmm. uh, what you're saying about you know the content that resonates in Lampung versus Jakarta versus um, Surabaya that that's what a lot of big companies are, I think are struggling with uh, they know mm -hmm. that do that, uh, but it's really not not that easy. Uh, so you had said that forty percent of you know your users had have never exercised before, which I find yeah. very very fascinating. Um, yeah, it's and, huge. And you're doing you said you're doing things that um, you know don't scale, uh, but that's kind of what you need to do to to onboard new new people to get them yeah. to join, uh, to kind of hook them. Um, is there anything else that you're doing specifically like? to attract these uh, new, new, I don't know what you call it, exercisers or people who are trying to get into fitness. And then like, uh, what, are the, what are the things that like, you know, they're hesitant about and that you are like talking to them one-on-one -on -one to get them uh, comfortable to continue working and working out on the app? Sure. So a lot of the, a lot of the feedback we get uh, as to why someone wouldn't work out or do meditation or anything like that is fear. People say that a lot, I'm scared, or I'm scared that I won't be able to make the class uh, and I will you know, pass out or something like that. A lot of times fear is um, based on something that's not very rational because it's just what they envision in their brain. Right, but when it's online, what's nice is if you don't like it after five minutes, just get out, log out, right? So no one's judging you because one, if it's a webinar style class, we physically cannot see you. So who knows at that stage? And then two, if it's really uncomfortable for you to turn on your camera, just turn it off and just, and if you don't even like it, just log off. So I think there's something nice about this online type of class that is attracting a lot of people because for once you don't have to feel like people are looking at you or that people are judging you because no one is and i think we've been quite good 
at giving that messaging because we, for the longest time, we've just been working on this messaging and brand strategy where we are non-judgmental, nor do we put a premium on a certain health goal. Like we don't care about six packs or, you know, having the next best diet because what the hell is a diet <laughs> anyway? Every person is different. And I think that is why we attract so many uh, beginners because they finally feel they don't have to be this one thing, like this one vision of health or this one vision of wellness. They can be whatever they want. They, they can be whoever they want, you know, and we don't also judge them for not liking a class, but we'd like to know why they don't like a class because, because if it's beca uh, because we are not teaching it well, then hell, we need to know that. And I think that is the part where we're just quite, um, quite active with. We're also, you know, we're, we also know who the regulars are, right? And we have a lot of data on conversion rate or uh, lifetime value and all of those things. So we do keep track of who they are, why they behave the way they do. And if there's a behavior that we think is interesting and something we need to learn, like, if there's a consensus that, hey, a lot of people don't buy your third class, like we need to learn why. And then if we see that there's somehow a huge boom, so one of the things that happened is there's an increase between how much people work out when they're offline versus online. So online, they do more workouts than offline. A lot of it is because we now have a much more affordable price tiering system. So our classes are either 20,000 rupiah, which is only $2 sing per class, or it's 40,000 rupiah or 100,000 rupiah. And it is based on the, you know, the coach's seniority and also your, your goals, whatever the hell that is. If you're just way more hardcore than everyone else, or if you want a certain kind of class or you like a certain type of trainer, then they're all leveled out in that way. And that kind of flexibility is also something I think people appreciate that wellness doesn't have to be this really expensive thing. You can pay for it through GoPay and it's like $2 thing. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, the pricing is, is something that makes it more accessible, right? A lot of these, like we said, uh, apps, programs are just quite expensive. You were, you were talking about <clears throat> your feedback loop, right? You're, a lot mm -hmm. of testing, a lot of the, the content that you are, are putting out, that, you know, you're validating this through the feedback from the community. Do you talk more about that? What uh, feedback loop is like or do you do you do any specific like co community building tactics within the app or your social media to really foster that two-way conversation um, yeah but to tell you the truth it's very manual right now and it's very manual because we basically went from becoming a 100% offline company to becoming a 100% online company, but not because we want to survive but because we want to make this a long-term thing right? We want to keep this going for as long as humanly possible. So when you're doing that kind of massive uh, shift, what we're focusing on is just experimenting with small amounts of people in the beginning. So we would launch a product or launch a new content, but put it uh, on 100 people or give it to 200 people. And then they rate it, right? According to 
whatever qualifications we have. And basically any, any type of consensus that veers a certain way, we're like, okay, let's figure this out. And then we would contact someone as a representative from that demographic, or we would just be interested in seeing why some things, for example, that we think are just pretty average, why it would receive the kind of attention that it receives. And it's honestly very manual for now, simply because, you know, this is a small scale type of experimentation. So over time, sure, we need to make it a lot more scalable so that we can, you know, test it on a million people. But right now, everything is actually very, very manual. Um, and even the C-suites themselves, the co-founders, we still talk to our customers and try to figure out why they like what they like. And we also take our own classes and check out our own content because we need to know what the trends are like. So overall, in order to do this kind of testing, this feedback loop, it requires a very close and you know, time-consuming method for now as we attempt to scale in the future. Um, but yeah, there's no shortcut to this right now. And I guess that's fine because it's, you know, it's a, it's a lean startup way. It's a small scale way. I think what you just said uh, reflects what uh, Tiger, Tiger Fong, who was on yep. the last few episodes ago, he was, he was talking about how the first customers that they did, they onboarded, he and his co-founder had to go out and they had to cold call and they had to like do the entire sales process. Um, and so <clears throat> you're just kind of reiterating the fact that even though you're the co-founder, you're the CEO, uh, and you have these fancy titles, you know, it's a startup. You got to roll up your, your sleeves and do a lot of the dirty work, the, you know, the work that some people might overlook, but it's hugely valuable to you. Part of the Silicon Valley folklore are these stories about founders coding throughout the night to launch a functional demo so that they can present to investors or a potential customer the next morning. With the advent of social media and now stories, which depicts these micro moments of our lives, it's easier than ever for people to broadcast how hard they're working or want you to believe that they're working. But working 100 hours a week isn't healthy and it's not sustainable no matter what the Elon Musks or the Marissa Mayers of the world will tell you. In fact, it can be counterproductive. Gita and I get into the notion of building a sustainable company and why balance and stable mental health are key. So <clears throat> you've essentially started, you know, in a sense, two businesses, right? Starting this offline boutique cycling studio and then uh, to really transform into your vision, uh, you had to pull everything online and become much more uh, tech uh, focused, right? So I guess, how, can you talk to me about that transition and, you know, built, you know, starting a, a boutique studio in itself is going to have a lot of different problems uh, getting off the ground, right? And then, and then transitioning to online, which is just, you know, similar, but totally different right so can you talk to me more about like what did you learn what are some things that like <clears throat> you really struggled with but like once you figured it out uh you could kind of see see the business grow uh exponentially afterwards hmm. um hmm. 
I think a lot of people assume that our fitness grew quickly, but we're also an almost six-year-old company. Um, in the you know in the extremely young uh, startup industry in Indonesia, we're one of the older players actually. So I, I mean, I would say if anything, our growth hasn't been this magnificent you know magnificent golf stick growth story. Um, if anything, we're pretty stable along the way. And a lot of it is because we found fundraising extremely challenging for many reasons. One of them is honestly, I'm probably also a bad, you know, fundraiser. I can't sell my story. Who knows? But whatever it is that we have a challenge with, we also have some strengths, right? And two of our biggest strengths is that we're very gritty. You know, I don't, Usually a lot of people when they experience hundreds of rejections by investors, it might uh, take them down and it does make us feel terrible. But in the end, we just keep going because that's just what we do. It's kind of like the whole just keep swimming, right? So we've been around for going into six years now. And really one of the things that we uh, think about is doing a startup is easy but staying up is hard you can start almost anything you know but whether or not you keep it going for a long time even if things don't look like they're gonna look up that's that's its own challenge that's its own thing regarding the challenges oh my gosh i don't even know where to start it almost seems like there's something new or there's a fire happening without us knowing like the next day at this stage right and it's because we're also not a huge company yet and also we need to work on our infrastructure because there's no way in hell any co-founder should be working 16 hour days forever because that won't be forever this kind of like idea that you know you'll sleep when you're dead is dumb as hell because when you're dead you're dead like like hello right um yeah so you need to find a way to create a good infrastructure and honestly creating a good infrastructure especially from the hr side uh because the hardest part isn't the business model or the finances it's people like how do you manage your company culture how do you uh maintain loyalty that's one thing that we've been able to work on throughout the years we have a 90 percent retention rate across the board starting from our you know cleaning guy all the way to trainers all the way to um, management levels and we do that because rather than always making it about the customer we actually make it about the employees first as much as we can we mess up along the way so we also have this culture where you know what like no one has all the answers the ceo definitely doesn't have all the answers like i've never built a peloton so who am I to say I know what I'm doing? So what's more important is if we mess up, we're just open about it because there's nothing to be defensive about. Like, I'm not the shit. Like, if I were, (laughs) I'd be a billionaire and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be trying super hard building something um, still from the ground up. Like, so I'm not, you know, I'm not a Nobel Prize winner. I'm none of these things. So if that's the case you need to be open to 
feedback. You need to be open to realizing you totally messed up. And that's something that we try to have the entire culture. That's why we have a very strong internal uh, educational culture. Like for example, for the operations team, which includes like admin and also sales, they have their own weekly forum where they talk about their challenges, their issues, any feelings they have. And then we also uh, put in an educational module in it. So a leadership uh, seminar or a forum on talking about any topic such as diet culture. And these are all pretty cool and it's something that makes people feel that at the very least they are part of a learning culture that hopefully bleeds over to the customers so the customers we have a we have this um you know company culture of leveling up so hopefully we can give that same sense of learning to our customers who before then maybe they've only been able to meditate for three minutes but then because they work on it they're able to do a yoga class meditate for five minutes so any type of improvement is something that needs to be celebrated and i think that's a culture that we've been working on for the last almost six years so i I love what you're talking about when it comes to company culture and that nobody is perfect, right? I think, you know, with my team, uh, one of the things that I'm trying to preach is I feel like a lot of people get very nervous when they make mistakes or they're afraid to make mistakes, like they're going to get in trouble. And I try to preach that uh, mistakes are how we learn, right? And and that's the only way that we will learn is if we try new things and we're going to fail a little, but uh you know, it's from what you're saying, it sounds like you are fostering that that culture within and then it's impacting, you know, this culture so that, you know, 40% of your, your audience is new, right? And it, it's yeah. together in that respect. Um, so you're talking about, this is a long process, six years, right? You know, a lot of people yes. that uh, startups are, you know, these overnight successes, but they don't, they don't see all the the sleepless nights, um, the, the right. nose beforehand, right? Uh, but you you touched on a couple things. One is the work-life balance, right? We're, right. we're dead, we're dead, right? Um, yeah. so one, I guess, how, how have you, you know, startup culture is very like hustle porn, right? They wanna, and I'm, I'm proud, guilty of this where you know you post an Instagram story saying like yo it's 12 o'clock I'm still working right uh, but like you said that's not sustainable so how how have you approached making sure you and your team is is dialed in and working on that on how to balance work life and making sure that you can you're in this for the long haul Right. So for us, I think the team, because a lot of them have stayed right over, you know, five and a half years more, a lot of us just grew up together. So they saw the CEO messing up all the time and saying it during a meeting going, hey, everyone, sorry, I totally did not pay attention to this one thing. And now I think I made a client really angry. You know, so I, I think that's really important. It's very easy to say that you all should 
not be afraid to make mistakes. But it's a very different story when, as a leader, you say that you did and what you did specifically, to be exact, right? When people say, yeah, you should love learning, you know, why don't we just share what we really did learn? Because sometimes I would learn the simplest crap that I just had no idea. Legit. Like, I'm like, how did I grow up my entire life not understanding how to do that? Like, how is this my first time learning this skill set? Like when I posted one time, hey, I just learned how to swim for the first time at the age of 35. People went, how did you just learn that? I'm like, I just did. I have no idea. <laughs> so when we say, you know, I always encourage uh, people in the company that if you say you mess, uh, you want to learn, or if you say like, don't be afraid of failure, fess up on what exactly those are. Don't just say like, I don't have the, all the answers, but then not say, you know, your actual vulnerability really fess up because nothing I think inspires people more than seeing other people's experience and vulnerability and speaking and sharing their stories. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. What? Two-way street yeah. to be vulnerable. You have to be vulnerable. Correct. And being vulnerable also means that you're you have to be honest with yourself. You're honest with yourself. You need to know what your personal goals are, your professional goals are. And despite knowing it quite clearly, I'm a big believer that you also can't hold on to it very tightly. The reason is you can't control anything else in this world but your reaction. So your best laid plans could easily go to shits the next day because that's the world, right? And it's not because you didn't work hard enough because who's to say who works the hardest, right? Like maybe there's a farmer out there who worked 20 hour days and out in the sun and yeah, they outwork you, you know? But that's just life. That's the world. So rather than you know, trying to get sucked into this insane culture, one, I always try to encourage people to ask themselves, do you know what race you're running? Like, what rat race is this? Like, where are you going? And are you sure you want to even go there? And then there's this great thing by Tuesdays with Maury, like the, you know, that very famous book about uh, life and death. And the story goes, they were, you know, everyone, all the students and professors were at this football game and they were going, we are number one, we are number one. And then Professor Mori went, what's wrong with being number two? And everyone just went silent. And that's something we have to think about because what is this competition that we make up in our heads? You know, like, do we even know what the standards are? Why are we making all these rules and meanings and uh, impossible standards for ourselves? That's something I try to ask myself a lot when I, when I feel myself running so much. Like, you know, not literally, but figuratively. And another thing that I try to see is if you're trying to make startup this lifelong endeavor, or if you're trying to create a something that will last decades, then your game plan has to be different than someone who goes, okay, I want to create something. And in two years, if it crashes and burns, that's fine. But let me see if I can make a unicorn in two years, right? That's its own mindset. It's neither right or wrong. It's just its own mindset. 
personally, uh, I would like to create something that'll last decades. But if it's gonna last decades, then it has its own needs, its own infrastructure, its own way of thinking, its own different viewpoints, its own, you know, its own type of uh, path, but also because you just can't control the entire world. I can't control literally anybody. I can't even control my pets, right? And because you can't, despite having a path, despite seeing that uh, journey, I also have to be open and not be so st stuck to that. Like it can shift at any time. And when it shifts, that's when you have to be open with a mindset shift too and go, well, guess this is my new path. There's not, there's not one passion, one path, one purpose for everyone. That's insane. Like your life is both long and short. Anything can happen. So the only thing you can do is just go for the ride and, oh crap, I just made that. <sighs> Sorry, I didn't mean to do that, by the way. I didn't mean to make that pun, but a boosh. But really all you can do is just go on this big roller coaster ride that is that is life what race are you running <clears throat> i think that's the first time i've ever heard that but i think that is something that's going to stick with me right because you know you just you were talking about building a sustainable com company versus uh you know a unicorn in two years and mm -hmm. you know i don't know if i've ever asked myself that question right but you know i'm I'm hustling a lot. I'm burning a lot. Uh, you know, the, the candle at both ends. Uh, but maybe, maybe I don't know what what race I am running. Uh, but that's that's a very, you know, profound point from where I'm sitting right now. Oh. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you. Right, a lot of what you you've been talking about is <clears throat> mental health based. Right. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about this open open culture of of. Mm -hmm and self-reflection and really understanding who you are and, and what you want um, coming from the U.S. Like, I think, you know, there's still stigma around mental health, but it has been uh, decreasing in, you know, the past decade, you know, uh, it's still there, right? And then when I, I come to uh, Indonesia, I feel like I've, I've gone back in time a little bit. Yeah. Stigma is a little bit uh, stronger, and and you know, you know, I came I came from LA where you know people will openly talk about their their therapist and what they're talking about with their therapist. Right. It's no big deal, and it isn't a big deal, right? But then, like here, it it's a little bit more like walking on eggshells, uh, and so right. reflect. Uh, one of your offerings kind of touches on that. Uh, like, can you tell me more about like, you know, I think I understand why it's important to you, but like how, how, you know, reflect is being uh, accepted and like, how do you see, you know, Indonesia in general, maybe being more open to this in the future? Yeah. So yeah. Great question. Recently, I did a talk uh, about mental health for this one company. So I do talks once in a while on either Instagram Live or for companies and businesses to just share my own personal experience because mental health anything is usually just so stigmatized and stigma happens when you don't know something. And when you don't know something, you assume that something that is different from you equals bad. 
right? Like we humans, like all humans due to our cognitive bias, which you know a lot about because we tend to read the same books. Um, humans with their cognitive bias tend to see things that they don't understand uh, from a perspective of, I don't know you and you are different, therefore different equals bad which is one of like our worst traits. We don't, you know, we talk a lot about the importance of diversity, blah, blah, blah. But for the most part, people just talk about it because it sounds great on Instagram. In reality, when we see things that we just don't understand, our level of, um, you know, our level of interest to pursue understanding something we don't know, for the most part is quite low. Um, like, whenever people find out or when i tell them you know i have mental health problems people tend to hijack my story right they immediately drown me out of my story and go oh no don't say that you're totally fine and then it's like actually who says that i don't think i'm fine like why is neurodiversity yeah diversity meaning like my way of thinking is not inferior to yours it's just different than yours it's not better than yours either but it is different than yours i have my own different issues just like you have your own different issues so when i hear people stigmatizing mental health i always go are you talking this way because your ego is um is not accepting that diversity in people's thought patterns is there and that's something a lot of people don't think about they're like wait ego i'm like yeah because when you make very quick judgment calls it is based on yourself and your ego not accepting that you don't know something right that's why we have all sorts of different cognitive bias running around, like the concept of confirmation bias, when we cherry pick data to confirm what we believe and what we feel. It's the problem is when people believe that their opinion is the truth. That's how you end up in trouble, right? Or you believe that your feeling is real. When in reality, I'm like, when was the last time you read a book about mental health? When was the last time that when someone tells you their mental health issues, you actually do active listening, aka you don't interject with um, solutions or with your thoughts. And that's something I want to encourage people to do more, which is to comment less and learn more, listen more, read more. Um, and yeah, and I think this is, this is a real issue. Um, social media doesn't help either, right? I don't think the human brain is meant to process that much information in a thoughtful way. If you read um, Thinking Fast and Slow, as you know, that there are two systems, right? System one is the part of the brain that is very quick, that makes these um, quick decisions very fight or flight, you know, very good or bad. It tends to also like make, uh, you know, quite, quite fast yes or no um, decisions. And then system two is the slower, but it's the most, uh, it's the more rational part. And the, the funny part is a lot of us think we're more rational than we think, but we're really not. A lot of our decisions is based on those quick system one, yes or no, gut feeling or whatever, right? So when I hear stigma, I will always go, where did you get that, 
your opinion from. Oh no, I got it because I know three people who were, you know, who were saved from their mental illness by going to church. I was like, okay, are three people enough data point to confirm that what you think is true is the absolute universal truth? Well, you know, and that's usually when people fall apart, right? Because they're like, oh, wait, like maybe three people I know don't count. Or they're like, well, there's this Instagram account, you know, by this psychologist who believes this. And I was like, that's fine. And believing something is fine. But the question is, when was the last time you spoke to someone with a mental problem? When was the last time you read a book on it? Um, have you read some medical journals on it? And it's usually when you start really learning something and really pay attention and seeing the nuances in every, every situation, every condition, including mental health, that's when I start seeing people respecting that they don't know what they don't know. And it requires accepting that you don't know something to start actually, you know, appreciating it. And that is why for me, this is a very personal thing. Um, because one, I believe that there is such a thing as neurodiversity. I believe that you, one person's way of looking at the world isn't the only way to look at the world. And two, I believe in learning that people need to accept that they don't know every single thing about this universe. And if we don't know every single thing about the universe, shouldn't we see things as an opportunity to learn rather than an opportunity to judge? So you, talking about, you know, belief does not equal fact, right? I think this is really important. Uh, people are, are very anecdotal, uh, you know, <laughs> they use, their you know three three personal experiences to confirm their bias, yeah. but it is it is like a and it, and it is an issue right because it is uh, spreading misinformation about a, a very sensitive and important topic. Uh, so yeah. reflect like how are people how is this helping people or um, you know what is because you know there's it sounds like a lot of the ways to combat this is is to normalize it to talk about it and to use data to make sure that uh the, the information is is correct right right uh, so through reflect is it uh are you able to do this you know directly or is it kind of like a a, pro a starting process right we're still in the starting process because i think it's something that is so um considered you know a, more about more about strength of character rather than something that you know why not why not check and see if you're if you're as you know as in at peace as you think and we do also b2b um corporate life coaching seminars and sessions and that's something that companies have said they found it surprisingly helpful and i always find it funny that they say it's surprisingly helpful because i'm like dude if you know if you have never even taken a break to see whether or not you're living the life you want who are you to say that you know you don't need professional help or you don't need an extra set of eyes that are not looking at your life from your vantage point 
And that for me is like big. So I think we just need to start the conversation and start the conversation in a very vulnerable and as it is way, which is something I at least try to do in my tiny, you know, small part of the universe. And yeah, so I think like Reflect is still at a starting point. Um, our life coaching and our, you know, life coaching seminars are also still at a starting point, but virtually people who take them, virtually all of them have said that they needed that pause in their life to really wonder what they're doing. And I think a lot of us just go on autopilot, right? This autopilot hustle type of life that we really don't take enough of a pause to go, I, do I like this? Like, do I even enjoy what I do anymore? <laughs> you know, like what life am I doing? So I think it's very important to realize and appreciate not just resting because your body will break down if you don't rest, but also how important it is to know where you are and what you're doing and not just run in a hamster wheel, which is very easy to do. Yeah, it goes goes back to what race are you running? If you haven't picked up on it yet, Gita is an intelligent founder who has built something real. Yet, she's had an extremely difficult time raising venture capital to scale her business and bring her vision to life. She's not alone. Women receive a very small percentage of venture capital dollars compared to men. It's a systemic problem that is preventing thousands of excellent companies from being built. We close this interview with the problem of VC and what young women need to be aware of as they look to raise money. Uh, so we've talked about <clears throat> kind of building your company, uh, how you use data to, to inform your decisions for growth, uh, and kind of like tying in the, the mental health aspect of just being an entrepreneur. Um, one thing as we close that I wanted to talk to you about was um, female entrepreneurship. Right, so I it I hate saying female entrepreneurship because it it okay. makes it sound like it's a separate thing, uh, but you know the data shows that uh, female entrepreneurs are funded at a much lower level than than male um, counterparts. I think it, I think the last number that I saw was like 1.9 billion in the past year or quarter. I forget the, the time frame, but it was quite low. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned that you had raised uh, some venture capital within the past year, right? And so you, you know, had mentioned that the company is at six years old now, right? So it's taken you a while uh, to get to this point and you've raised uh, a new round of funding. Um, but it seems like, you know, and I haven't uh, actively raised venture capital funds. I'm not a woman, but like, it seems like it's harder for women, right? And I, I don't know why. And I was wondering if you were able to speak on your experience and like for any young women out there, like how can they, how can they prepare or what, what things do they need to be aware of uh, when they're going out and uh, trying to raise venture capital? Oh yeah, sure. This is one of those topics that, you know, any female entrepreneur probably don't feel comfortable talking about simply because the moment we say anything, 
men assume that we're attacking them and then they immediately go, well, that's not like that with me. And then you're like, oh gosh, forget it. I should have never said anything, you know? And that is again, this idea of because a male entrepreneur is not a female entrepreneur and they actually don't know literally what it feels like, right? Um, people have this tendency to see if I don't know something and I don't understand it, therefore, you know, therefore it's wrong or therefore it's bad or therefore forget it. Right. It's again, it's the, it's your bias. It's literally your reptilian brain just hijacking and assuming that your feelings is facts. So therefore, when I talk about the challenges, the number one people who challenge me on it, on my actual experiences are men, like male investors. They're like, well, I'm not like that with you. And I was like, dude, who's talking about you, you know? But the fact is the, the numbers are terrible. Like women overall has always, you know, we tend to raise less than 3% of the global venture capital funding. So I don't care how you slice the data. And there's so much, you know, there's so many studies on this, so many numbers, and it never tells a different story. It always says, hey, look, discrimination across the board. But when you say that there's so much fragility and there's so much, you know, defensiveness that is very hard to move past it. And that's something I will, um, I will warn a lot of women if they try to go down a route of venture capital funding. There's a lot of dog whistling. There's a lot of people not saying, you know, people doing things and asking you questions that honestly, it makes you wonder if they asked it to other male entrepreneurs. And a Harvard Business Review study shows, yeah, they ask different questions for female entrepreneurs. And it's not because they're mean people and it's not because they're uh, necessarily consciously sexist. It's because that is the bias. Look, if the majority, actually not even the majority, if your entire decision-making board looks like you, acts like you, all dudes, you know, went to school in an Ivy, whether you like it or not, you will be more familiar with that, right? I'm not gonna lie. If I meet a female entrepreneur, I can easily say like, yeah, I, you know, I connect with her, like I get it, right? So, but people hate feeling that they're not rational because that's the irrational part of your brain, assuming that you're more rational than the average person. Like for example, just, you know, you look at any type of experiment where people ask, hey, what's the probability that your marriage will end in divorce? Everyone will say, oh, like 0%. But as we know, the divorce rate is not 0%. So if you're going to look at the data, there's, you will have to say, honestly, 40 up to 50%, right? But people, like I said, people are not ready or they don't like facing their bias. But the fact is, look at the decision makers. Unless a woman partner have the veto power to, you know, to basically halt an investment or make an investment a go uh, from their other male partners, then I'm really not convinced that anything that a an investor, a male investor does, you know, have completely changed the system. Changing the system and creating venture capital funding that is more um, 
equitable in terms of access will be will take honestly probably at least 25 up to 30 or more years this is not instantaneous if right now we're only at two percent holy crap when will we when will we get at 50 percent but like i said you bring this up and then the first thing a lot of um, male investors will say is like, oh, they don't apply, they don't this, they don't this, not realizing that the question is the systemic problem, system, 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 not individuals. So as individuals, they can do their best, but unless their board is 50-50 male, female, or minority and, you know, and diverse, I'm seriously still not convinced if they are as unbiased as they say they are. And then they're like, we do stress tests. I'm like, bro, I graduated from Wharton. I know for a fact, like in finance, we cherry pick data. That doesn't mean anything, right? Like, so that's, that's the biggest problem with, you know, with the whole entire venture capital and, and startup ecosystem. This is a huge systemic um, shift that we have to fight for. Women will unfortunately have to deal with the fact that they might get some dog whistling situations. Like when um, investors, according to studies, so it's not just my feelings, have shown that male investors ask female founders different type of questions. It's a lot more defensive. Like it's a lot more, well, how, how can you protect yourself from, you know, from uh, competitors rather than more optimistic, which is like, how big is your market? Like, how are you going to grow? But then they word it differently, which is, I swear, I've had these questions. I'm not joking, which is, oh, but do you think that the health market is big enough? <laughs> like, did you ask that to other, to other like wellness company founders? Like if you even think about the question itself, it just sounds not that rational, you know, or when um, a friend of mine came out with a product for pregnant women, they actually asked, do you think pregnant women is a big market? Like if you think about it logically, women tend to be pregnant quite regularly. So most likely, yeah, it's a pretty big market. Also, it's 51% of the entire world's population. And so, <laughs> and so that's, that's the thing, right? Like, there are just so many problems about it. And I'm okay that a lot of people say I complain a lot about it, because a lot of women don't have this privilege. A lot of women don't have this capacity to complain because, you know, if they do, maybe they'll lose a lot more than me, right? And also I've been in the game for a while. So in some way I do owe it to other female entrepreneurs to try to make their lives better because it's gonna suck. Like I have a niece, she's four. Who says that, you know, 20 years from now, she won't come crying going like, it just doesn't seem fair, but I can't put my hand on it. And you're like, yep, that's, um, that's how it feels. <laughs> so I think if, you know, I think as a female entrepreneur, if at least you're privileged enough to have a company that's more stable and, you know, you have a more stable footing in the ecosystem, you know, might as well just be, un you know, be uncomfortable, be really annoying, start speaking about it more and try to, um, fix the system or try to subvert it as much as you can even if it sucks and even if people will make fun of you and people will just say uh you're you know you're just too bitchy because that's the reality you don't change things by being nice and trying to fit in with everyone else especially with if everyone else isn't creating the kind of diverse world that will help our future generation
No, I think what you're saying is, you know, hearing it from a male perspective is a little bit frustrating, uh, but it's also like, you know, we've been talking about it in the context of venture capital, but it's, it's societal. You've been, you've been saying systemic, um, you know, I was, I was thinking just anyone outside of, you know, in management, they've, they've probably be, been in situations where either they've experienced it or as a male, they've <clears throat> unconsciously uh, put these, um, you know, these thoughts out there, right? Like I, I was thinking, you know, when you were giving the examples of uh, the questions that, you know, a VC might ask uh, a man versus a woman, you know, it brings to mind people saying, you know, a woman is difficult, you know, she complains a lot uh, when, when things they don't agree with, right? When a male might be labeled as like proactive, innovative, thinking differently. Uh, and so I think these are things, no matter what line of business in, you're in, you can, you can change. And it's, it's going to take, it's, I mean, it's going to be a combination of women, you know, continuing to, you know, kind of bust that door down and, and, you know, I don't know if accept the labels is the best term, but, you know, like continue to, to do the things that they need to do, but it's also going to be the men have to be more aware, right? We've been talking about awareness uh, of who you are. And I mean, personally, I, I, uh, maybe two years ago, I had to put together a panel for a, uh, an event at work. And it wasn't until the day of the event that I realized I had put together a panel of four men and I was like super embarrassed, but yeah, hadn't done it on purpose, but it goes back, you know, you saying that you, you know, unconsciously will kind of surround yourself with people, things that you know. And, you know, I think all the men on that panel had, you know, backgrounds similar to me. So then mm -hmm. I've had to, you know, next year I made sure that every panel that I, I created was 50, 50. And I'm, I'm trying to do that with this, this podcast in the demographics of the founders, but it's, you know, admittedly it's, it's still hard, but I think, uh, you know, people like you, like me, we have to, we have to continue to be vocal about this and educate people. Right. It's, you know, I think that's a common theme with a lot of things that we've been talking about today. Yeah, I agree. I think it's just something that we all have to work on in our own way and realize that it's a long process to progress in almost any field, in almost anything. It's just what matters is during the way you have to enjoy the process and keep swimming. Absolutely. Gita, it has been a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, can you let everyone know uh, where they can find you online and, and download your, your apps? Sure. Um, you can find us at our fitness uh, for our app. Uh, and you can also find us at our fitness official on Instagram. And me personally, I am at Gita Sees, G-I-T-A-S-E-E-S, -E -E like I see the world. Um, I know it's cheesy. And yeah, and feel free to follow and see what we're up to. Great. Thank you so much for the time. Of course. Thank you. That's a wrap for season one of the Side Door Podcast. Thank you to everyone who listened and supported the podcast in this inaugural season. Don't forget to rate the podcast on your favorite podcast app. I'll be taking a quick holiday break and starting to release new episodes in February. I'm going to start the year by interviewing operators and investors, crucial roles in the startup ecosystem, but with a different vantage point from entrepreneurs. Please go to sidedoor.fm and sign up for the newsletter.
I'll send new episodes directly to your inbox when I publish them. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays. And as always, stay curious.